Now we've come to a section of Matthew 24 this morning that uh, is somewhat difficult. And uh, this is a portion of God's Word where we need to show charity toward each other because at the end of this passage, we may discover that we disagree with each other. But uh, that's all right, where Scripture has been clear, and uh, Scripture is undeniably clear in some places, then we have to speak with one voice. But uh, where Scripture is not clear, then Christians are free to disagree. And this is a passage where we may have some disagreement. I think I understand it, but uh, at the end of the hour, you may be convinced that I don't understand it at all, but uh, that's all right. Uh, We are to love each other and uh, live together as brothers in the same family, whether we agree or or not. This is, I think, a very challenging passage of Scripture, but uh, I think we ought to enjoy challenges. Proverbs says that if you search for truth like hidden treasure, then uh, you will know God. You'll come to know God. So it's uh, fun to dig, fun to dig for treasure. Now, I'd like to have you turn to Matthew 24 with me, to uh, this section of the Gospels, which um, we usually usually designate the Olivet Discourse. You'll remember that the apostles raised the question in verse 3, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This question, in turn, was uh, evoked by the statement that Jesus made that the temple would be destroyed in verse 2. As they were making their way through the temple buildings, the Lord pointed out, the disciples pointed out to the Lord the magnificence of this structure. And uh, the Lord forewarns them that a time is coming when not one of these stones would be left standing upon the other. In other words, he predicts the total destruction of the temple. And uh, this triggered the question of the disciples, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, as we said last week, it's clear from the question that the disciples asked that they believed the destruction of the temple would be immediately followed by the coming of the Lord. An event of this magnitude, they knew, had to indicate the end of the age and that the Lord would soon come. And in the verses that follow from 3 through 14, the Lord corrects this misconception. What he does for them and for us is describe the course of history from that point in time, 31 A.D., on down through our present period on into the future to the time when he comes again. He describes that period as a time of trouble, a time of distress. There will be war. There will be famine, earthquake, persecution, apostasy lawlessness and he says this uh, this world will get colder and colder and uh, then he tells the disciples what their attitude should be toward the world in which they they live they are not to be deceived that is they're not to give way to the flood of of propaganda that will pervade the world during this age the uh, the attempts on the part of secular society to draw us away from the word no the lord says go back to the apostles go back to what i taught what the apostles taught, and put your roots down into the word. Don't be deceived. Secondly, he says, don't be afraid. Don't give way to fear during these times of stress. Thirdly, we are to live out our lives righteously. We're to be godly and righteous, full of truth, 
love for people, compassion. And finally, we're to make proclamation of the truth. This gospel of the kingdom, he says, shall be preached throughout to all nations, throughout the world, and then the end will come. And so what he does is simply sweep through history for the apostles to let them know that his coming does not immediately follow the destruction of the temple. This will be a long period of trouble. These are what uh, Paul calls the last days, and we're in them. This is it. Uh, this, is our, this is our life. And then in verses 15 and following, the Lord begins to answer specifically the questions that they raised. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things that are in his house. I remember my father telling me years ago of a, of a country preacher back in the 30s who was concerned about uh, women wearing their hair in a top knot instead of permitting it to grow uh, long and wear it down their back. And he preached a sermon on verse 17, top knot go down. But uh, it's clear that's not what the Lord has in mind here. Let him who is on the house top not go down to get the things that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Here the Lord speaks um, as a prophet, relying upon his prophetic credentials. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now here he describes a period of history that he calls a time of great tribulation. And uh, he says if you happen to be in uh, Jerusalem during this time, if you're a tourist traveling there or you're living there, and certain events occur, then head for the hills. Because this will be a time of unprecedented trouble. There will be nothing, there has been nothing like this in history prior to this, to this time. And this period of great tribulation, he says, will end with the coming of the Son of Man. It will be an obvious coming. Unlike his first coming, which was quiet, very few knew that he was God in flesh. His second coming would be like the lightning shining from the east to the west. Everyone would see it. He'll be, as C.S. Lewis says, God without disguise. He'll be disclosed as the person he really is, the God-man. And the entire world will see it. 
Now, thinking back to last week, remember, remember he describes this period of history that we call the last times leading up to the second coming as a time of tribulation. Here, he adds a ne- another truth that, this, that there will be a period of time at the very end which he designates as a time of great tribulation. If times are tough now, it will be much harder then. And the event that signals the beginning of this period he calls the great tribulation is something that he describes as the abomination of desolation. The abominable thing that causes desolation. That's the idea of the term. And it is something of a cryptogram. The Lord simply makes a statement without explanation, and he says, let the reader understand. Now, I think this is Matthew's uh, insertion, causing us to think about what Jesus is saying. What does he mean by the abomination of desolation, referred to by Daniel the prophet? Well, the obvious solution or the way to solve that problem is to go back to the book of Daniel and see what Daniel had in mind when he described the abomination of desolation. The place we need to go is Daniel 9. So if you'll take, uh, if you turn in your Bibles back to that chapter... I'd like to give us a quick quick look at Daniel's description of the abomination of desolation. In Daniel 9, you have a vision or a revelation which was given to Daniel. In the first week, first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. And as best we can date that revelation, it would be about 539 B.C., In other words, a couple of years before the exiles began to return to Judea. Jeremiah had prophesied that there would be 70 years of exile. In 586, Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, and the Judeans were exiled off into Babylon, where they remained for some 70 years. And we're now toward the end of that 70-year period. And uh, Daniel's been uh, counting up years, and he realizes that the 70-year period is coming to an end. And as he reads the book of Jeremiah, the question comes to mind, will they now return to, uh, to Jerusalem? And so he begins to pray. And in verse 18, he prays, God, incline thine ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city which is called by thy name, for we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. He's praying for the return. They want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, which the Babylonians had destroyed. In verses 20 and following, we're told of, a, of an angel, Gabriel, who appears in a vision. And he gives a revelation that's described in verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, 70 weeks are determined in order to finish up God's redemptive program. God has a plan for Israel that encompasses all of the things which he describes here. And in 70 weeks, that program will be wrapped up. So, in verse 25, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 
Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. In 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And we know that that the Lord in Matthew 24 is is quoting from chapter 9 of Daniel when he refers to the abomination of desolation. The form of the quotation indicates that it comes from this particular chapter. And the Lord says, let the reader understand. That's us. Therefore, we need to to understand uh, the revelation that Gabriel gave to Daniel. Now, it's not easy, but it's possible. Gabriel said that 70 weeks had been decreed. The word that's translated weeks here in our English translation really means a unit of seven. Shabuah It's a Hebrew word. It's used for a number of things, but... Essentially, for, for a unit of seven, of anything. It could be weeks, years, days, months. But it means a unit of seven. Now, if we make it units of years, some interesting things happen in the calculations. 490 years are decreed for your people. In other words, seven units of 70 would be 490. 490 years. So you are to know, in verse 25, he says, and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, 69 units of seven will intervene between the decree to restore Jerusalem and 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 the coming of Messiah the Prince. That would be 483 years. Or, if we convert to Julian years, 476 Julian years, according to our calendar. The Jews had a different calendar. They had 30-day months, lunar months. So we had to make some adjustments. 476 years from the issuance of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the appearance and the death of Messiah the Prince. We know when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was issued, it came under the reign of Artaxerxes, one of the Persian kings. It's dated for us precisely in Scripture. We also know from secular documents that it occurred in April of 445 B.C. No question about that date. Now, if you make some simple computations, 445 B.C. plus 476 years is 31 A.D. And uh, sometime in mid-April, probably April the 7th, 31 A.D., the Lord walked into Jerusalem and said, Oh, that today you knew the things that make for peace, but you would not. Almost down to the very day, Daniel predicts the fact that Messiah would be cut off. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, that is the seven weeks plus 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. I notice the wording of that prophecy. It's not the prince who destroys the city, but the people of the prince who is to come. 
who will ruin the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And we know from the book of Daniel and from elsewhere that the people were from Rome. Shortly after Messiah was cut off, the Lord was crucified in 31 A.D., A.D. 31. Thirty-nine years later, the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the walls and burned the temple to the ground. These were the people of the prince who is to come. And then in verse 27, he, it says, and the most natural referent is the prince. The prince, that is the prince whose people destroyed the city, some, some individual who comes from the Roman Empire, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, one seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. In other words, he will establish some sort of covenant with Israel which will guarantee their, their integrity in, their land, in the land, their right to live there. And that treaty will stand for three and a half years. But in the middle of the week, the middle of the seven-year period, he will do something abominable. That will desecrate the temple. Now there's a gap, you see, between the 69th week and the final week. Daniel surveys history from 445 B.C. He's writing in the uh, 6th century, 538 uh, uh, or so. And uh, he surveys history from 445 down to 31 A.D. And then it's as though the, uh, the directors is cut. And time marches on without any, uh, with, without any, we don't, he doesn't say anything more about the intervening, peri- intervening period. And then someone will emerge out of the Roman Empire who will establish a treaty with Israel that will grant her permission, perhaps, to remain in the land. But in the middle of this seven-year period, he will do something horrible. He will desecrate the temple. And all of this is yet future. The only historic event that Daniel mentions is the destruction of Jerusalem, which is behind us in 70 A.D. This is all yet future, you see. Now, if you turn over a page or two to Daniel 11, we have a further description of this uh, abominable thing. We, We might not know what he's talking about if there were not in history an event that is called the abomination of desolation. In other words, the Lord gave us a preview. He permitted something to happen in history that allows us to know what this abominable thing will be that we have yet to look forward to. You see how how Jesus is arguing. Daniel referred to someone who's coming, and he's going to set up the abomination of desolation. And when you see that, he says, then flee into the mountains, because this period of great tribulation will begin. Well, our question is, what is it? What will he do? What do we look for? In Daniel 11, we're told, Now, it's difficult to know how much detail to go into. Daniel 11 is a survey, again, of history, almost from Daniel's time, right on down to uh, just shortly before the Lord came. He begins with a description of the last four Persian kings. And then in uh, verse 3, he disposes of Alexander the Great in one verse. A mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. And that's all he says about Alexander. 
But as soon as he has risen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside him. Here Daniel is writing in uh, the 6th century, the latter part of the 6th century, about a man we know in history who came in the 4th century, 336 B.C., Alexander the Great, and he predicts that his kingdom would be taken from him and broken into four parts, and that's exactly what happened. His four generals divided his kingdom into four portions, and each took a part of it. And a man named Seleucus took Syria to the north of Palestine. It included Palestine. And another general, Ptolemy, took Egypt. And the rest of the chapter, Daniel 11, describes the course of history as it's played out by these two dynasties, the Seleucid dynasty up in Syria and the Ptolemaic dynasty down in Egypt. I don't want to bore you with all the details because nobody cares, but uh, you need to know what, uh, what's going on here. And beginning in verse 21, he talks about a despicable person who will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. And he's talking about one of these fellows from Syria up north whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV. He named himself Antiochus Epiphanes. It means God manifest. The Jews named him Antiochus Epimenes, the madman. Antiochus, the crazy man. And uh, he ranted and raved all over uh, Syria, expanded his uh, authority over Palestine and over the Ptolemaic kingdom to the south, defeated Egypt on one occasion. That defeat is described for us here in verse 25. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Egypt fell. And in verse 29... We read, at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim, Kittim is Rome, Roman galleys rode up to the shore. Since they will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action, so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Antiochus made his way down into Egypt, and he thought it would be easy pickings, and just as he was ready to launch his campaign, he had his army massed on the, the uh, Nile Delta. Along came the Roman ships, and a young Roman legate stepped out of uh, one of these galleys, marched over to Antiochus, and Antiochus knew him. They'd gone to school together in Rome. And uh, he stuck his hand out to greet him, and Lanus put a piece of paper in his hand, ordering him out of Egypt. And it made Antiochus so mad that he marched his army north from that point, burning and pillaging as he went. And for no particular reason, he marched into Jerusalem. And in verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. And what Antiochus did was to offer a sow on the altar in Jerusalem and desecrated it. Now, that gives us some idea of what the abomination of desolation is. That's, that's past. That's 167 B.C. So it tells us what's coming. 
Jesus says, when you see something like this, some horrible desecration of the holy site in Jerusalem, then you know that we're in the Great Tribulation. And three and a half years later, I'm coming back. Now, Daniel had a, had a foreview of, of this event in chapter 12, Daniel 12, verse 9. The angel Michael says to him, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And Matthew says, Let the reader understand. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's three and a half years plus 30 days. I don't know why the extra 30 days. That'll have to be explained to us later. But within three and a half years, the Lord will come back. That's the timetable. So you see, the Lord is answering very explicitly the, the question that the disciples ask. What is the sign of your coming? How will we know your coming? And Jesus says, when you see the temple desecrated. You see something of the nature, something similar to what Antiochus Epiphanes did, then you know that within three and a half years, plus or minus 30 days, I'm coming back. Now let's turn back to Matthew. Are you still with me? Yes, that's right. And I don't understand that either. Therefore, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You know, it actually happened once in history. In 68 A.D., when, when things began to break loose in Palestine and, and the Jews, the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem, realized that Jerusalem would soon be surrounded by armies and Titus and his four Roman legions would march against the holy city. They took off. They took the Lord at his word. Fled into Pella. The unbelievers did not. They went down into the sewers to hide. And most of them lost their lives. As I mentioned last week, a million, 100,000 people died in the siege of Jerusalem. 96,000 were taken captive. It's a terrible massacre. But uh, the Christians who took the Lord seriously, they left. They went to Pella and hid in the rocks. Eusebius, the church historian of, of that period, tells us. Now, this was not the abomination of desolation because the temple was not desolated at that time. It was torn down, but it wasn't desecrated. It was much later. This is another indication that history moves like, uh, like childbirth. Jesus said uh, his coming is like a woman giving birth to a child. The contractions increase in intensity and in frequency until the child is born. And throughout history is lineal. It, it moves like this toward one point in time. The Lord's coming back. But in the meantime, there are cycles. And these contractions begin. And everyone thinks, this is it. This is it. This is when the Lord's coming back. And then the contraction eases off. And then there's another and another. But his coming is certain, you see, though it's delayed. And uh, the Christians in 68 A.D. thought this was it, and they took to the hills, but that wasn't it. 
And we look at the uh, configuration of nations today and we say, this is it, and it might be. But uh, not yet, not yet. For one, uh, for one reason, there's no temple today to be desecrated. The Arabs own the holy site. If you go to Jerusalem today and you stand before the Wailing Wall, which is all that's left of the temple, it actually was just a part of the retaining wall that held the temple. And uh, the Jews go there to pray today. And if you look up on top of the Wailing Wall, you'll see a row of white rocks put up there by the Arabs to let the Jews know who holds the holy site. And today, on the spot which formerly was occupied by the temple, there is a beautiful mosque, the Dome of the Rock. And if you look at it, you'll know why the Jews can't just go in there and tear that thing down. There would be an outcry the likes of which this world has never seen. From everyone, it's a beautiful structure. And there it sits, right on the spot, formerly occupied by the temple. And he says, oh, no, no, the temple was further west. But the fact is, the, uh, the altar... The bronze altar was on the top of Mount Moriah, which is directly under the Dome of the Rock. Before the temple can be built, the Mosque of Omar has to be torn down. It's still there. So when we see the Dome of the Rock torn down, and we see a temple going up, and we see someone who makes a treaty with Israel, and then breaks the treaty after three and a half years and then desecrates that temple. The countdown has started. And we know that three and a half years later, plus or minus 30 or 45 days, the Lord is coming back. Paul knew that. Turn to Second Thessalonians. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading in chapter 2, verse 1. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. He's writing to a church. And he says the Lord's coming back. And we're going to be gathered together to him when he comes. That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or, your, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter. As if from us to the effect that the day, that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord in Jewish thought is the day when God intervenes in history. And God acts to set things right. And they thought, apparently, that they were in the great tribulation. And it would be only a matter of time before the Lord would come back. We know that because if you look across the page to chapter 1, verse 4, he says, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure, times were tough. They were dying for their faith. And they thought, this is it. This is the great tribulation. And Paul says, no. No, let no one deceive you. For it, verse 3, the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. This spirit of lawlessness that our Lord describes in Matthew 24. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who's that? The man who in the middle of the, of the week sets up the abomination that causes desecration. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's the man. That's the one we call the man of sin. The one described in Daniel 9, the prince whose people destroyed the sanctuary and who would now come to desecrate the temple a second time. And so the Lord says, when you, when you see these things, then you know. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house, and let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. And then in verses 23 through 28, he tells us that uh, there will be a, another assault upon the church in the form of false teachers who will present themselves as messiahs who will deliver us and take us out of this mess. And he says, don't believe them. Messiah won't come as a monk in Tibet or a guru in Peru. It will be like lightning. Everyone will see. They'll know. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Apparently that's uh, analogous to our idiom, where there's smoke, there's fire. You'll know. There are clear evidences of his presence. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of this period, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. His description in verse 20, 29 is taken from Isaiah 13. It's a quotation from Isaiah 13.10 and if you go back to that passage you'll see it's a description of the fall of Babylon. I do not think that the Lord is saying here literally that the sun will fall out of the sky. This is oriental imagery. He's simply saying that there will be chaos in the political sphere. Everything will break loose. All the foundational things will be torn up. The world will run amok. And in the middle of all of this, the Lord will come back to set it right. Because what happens, apparently, is that the Lord just takes his hands off of us and he lets us do what we want. And men are free to to be lawless and destroy one another. This lets us see what we're really like without any restraint. And then the Lord comes back. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It's a quotation from Zechariah 12. Zechariah says, They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will weep for him as a mother weeps for her only child. Those that align themselves with the ones who crucified the Lord will weep when they see him return. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. It's a quotation from Daniel 7. When Daniel saw the Son of Man with the Father coming on the clouds of the sky. 
And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. That's a composite quotation, but mostly from Isaiah 27, a reference to the regathering of Israel. The trumpets in Israel were designed for convocations. They blew the trumpet, and they've gathered from all over for these great feasts. And uh, the Lord says, that's the way it will be like when I, when I come back. The trumpet will sound, and God's people will gather from everywhere. As Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians, the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible, and will rise to meet him in the air. That's this great gathering of all of God's people, when the Lord comes back to set everything right. And you know, I know exactly what you're thinking. Where is the rapture? We aren't supposed to be there. You've been saying all morning, you'll see these things. And I sincerely believe that we will. Because if you follow through Matthew 24 and you just take the Lord's sequence honestly as he lays it out for us there, there's simply no rapture in view. He indicates that those to whom he's speaking would see these things. They would go through this period. Who were they? They were the apostles. The representatives of the church. Those who would teach the church. The foundation layers of the church. And you say, no, no, Matthew is a Jewish book. That's written for the, those, that will, those Jews who believe and who gather in the millennium under Christ's rule. But if that's so, then we've wasted the last year of our life in studying the book. It's not for us at all. And furthermore, we need to remember why these books were written. Matthew was written to Jewish Christians. All of his Gospels came later after the epistles in order to explain to the church the origins of the Gospel. It's written to Jewish Christians. Oh, it has a Jewish slant. There's no question about it. But it's written to people in the church. It's written to the apostles. Or these words were spoken to the apostles who wrote Scripture. And so I fully believe with all of my heart that this truth is for us. That we will indeed, if we're alive during those days, go through the Great Tribulation. And you say, I don't like that. But you know, when you stop and think for a moment, it's never been God's desire to shield us from suffering. Never. Remember the church in Thessalonica? That was a suffering church. They suffered intensely. John writes to... Uh, with reference to the saints who go through this period, and he says they will overcome him, that is the accuser, Satan, by the blood, the cross, the proclamation of the cross, the word of their testimony because they did not love their lives unto death. He says when we understand that it's through tribulation that we pass into glory, it really helps us to assess our priorities. What are the really important things in life? I, you know, I, have, to, I have to say that uh, it's hard to keep your priorities straight. We tend to focus on our homes and our jobs and our health and our children and things. And we don't store up treasure in heaven. We store it up here. But when God's people go through suffering, you learn how to hold things loosely here and now. You don't get preoccupied with things. 
Because you learn not to love your life unto death. That's what we need to learn. In the 1940s, five young, bright young men went off to Bolivia to minister to the Aor Indians. And they were all bludgeoned to death. And 50 replaced them. And shortly afterward, five more young men went to Brazil to the Aka Indians. And they were slaughtered. And today there is a growing, sending church among the Akas. The seed of the church, as historian tells us, historians tell us, is the blood of the martyrs. In fact, our word martyr is based on the Greek word for uh, witness. Witness and martyrdom were synonymous in the early days of the church. Why should it be any different for us? We here in the United States are very, very fortunate. We've gone through periods of time, long periods of time, when we've had no persecution, whatever. We don't even know what it's like, except we're scorned every once in a while. Or you may not make it to the top of your business. Or you may have trouble with your neighbors, but really that's about all we have to suffer. But down through history, God's people have have had to suffer. That's the name of the game. That's what purifies us. Well, then the question is, what kind of people should we be during all of this time? Well, we know from Jesus' opening remarks that we're not to be deceived. We're not to fall into the hands of the world. We're not to believe the lie. We're not to go the way that secular society goes. We're not to give up on our marriages because they're tough. We're not to give up on our sexual standards just because the whole world is going the other way. Don't be deceived. And don't be afraid. Be afraid. We don't need to fear. We don't need to panic. God's in control. Nothing's getting away from Him. Everything's on target. And thirdly, we need to be godly, upright, and righteous people. Living out the life of God in our world. And making proclamation. There's an excellent article in your challenge this morning. I would encourage you to read it by Chuck Colson. I won't take time this morning to read it. But uh, he talks about success and what success is in real terms in God's eyes. It's a great article. Read it, will you? His conclusion is that success is just being faithful. Enduring to the end. It's being God's people right where you are. When you look at passages like Second Peter and in First Peter, where Peter tells us how we ought to behave during these end times, it, he says things like, well, love one another and be hospitable and use your gifts and, and don't panic. Guard what you have. Just be faithful until the Lord comes back. read the greatest poem last week, and I, with this I'm done. It's by a black poet. Goes like this. There is a king and captain high, and he's coming by and by, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. You can hear his legions charging in the regions of the sky, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. He was hated and rejected, he was scorned and crucified, and you'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. When he comes, when he comes, he'll be crowned by saints and angels when he comes. They'll be shouting out Hosanna to the men that men denied. And I'll kneel among my cotton when he comes. So just hang in there. In your home. In your marriage. 
live out the life of God, draw upon his power, and patiently wait until he comes. Let's pray. Times like like this, I think, are good times to assess our priorities and ask ourselves that, that question, what are we living for? What's really important to us? Where do our minds go when we're not preoccupied with something else? Normally the thing that we daydream about is the thing that possesses us. Is it the Lord himself? Is it his kingdom and his righteousness? Or is it all these other things? Father, as scripture reminds us, seeing that all these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of men and women should we be? Teach us to hold the things that we have lightly and to see what really matters in this world and to give ourselves to growing in knowledge and in God-likeness and to use our opportunities to give, to give witness to the world. Thank you for this great promise that you're going to come back and set everything right. We wait eagerly for that time. In Jesus' name, amen.